This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hello and welcome to the Friday episode of Battleground Ukraine with me, Saul David and Roger Morehouse. Patrick is away this week and Roger, a brilliant historian and a good friend, has agreed to fill the breach. Well, I have to say, Roger, you've picked a good week to make your debut because the news for Ukraine is mostly positive. Firstly, after weeks of steady but incremental gains, the Ukrainian army is starting to make significant inroads into the main Russian defences, particularly in and around Robotine, south of Orykiv in western Zaporizhia. If these gains are exploited, they might soon have fire control over the east-west transport route, thus effectively severing Crimea from the land bridge in occupied Ukraine to Russia. In other good news for Ukraine, Brussels has pledged to give the war-torn country EU membership by 2030 at the latest, and Norway has become the latest country after the Netherlands and Denmark to announce it will donate F-16 fighters when Ukrainian pilots are properly trained. And from Russia, we've heard news that Yevgeny Prigozhin, the assassinated boss of Wagner, was buried in St. Petersburg this week. Meanwhile, the fallout from Prigozhin's death continues as the Russian Ministry of Defence takes steps to disband Wagner. And Poland, Lithuania and Latvia threaten to close their borders with Belarus in the event of any disruption there. We'll be discussing all this and giving you the latest update from the podcast's resident cyber security expert, David Alexander. But first, those battlefield gains. What are they and why are they so significant, Saul? Well, according to the Ukrainian Defence Minister Hanna Maliar, Ukrainian forces have liberated Robotine, achieved unspecified successes south of Robotine and south of Mala Tokmachka, and are advancing in various directions in that area. Now, if you look at the map, Roger, the Ukrainians have driven a large 10-mile-deep and 7-mile-wide wedge into the Russian lines south of Orykiv. Why is this significant? Because the gains mean that the rail and road hub of Tokmak, just a few kilometers to the south, will probably fall next. And that, in turn, will give the Ukrainian forces fire control of Melitopol, thus effectively severing the main supply route from Russia to Crimea. And secondly, of course, because according to Ukrainian sources, the attacking troops are now through the Russian main line of defense and the subsequent defensive systems 
won't be as strong. Now, we know these successes have rattled the Russians because the prominent pro-Kremlin military blogger Romanov has described the situation in the area as, and I quote, very dangerous. I should also mention a couple of other successes uh, that Ukraine's had, knocking out an S-400, that's the latest uh, missile system on the Crimean Peninsula, in a maritime special forces operation. They may well have been advised by our own SBS. And more recently, a drone strike on an airfield near Kursk that damaged five fighters and knocked out three other missile systems. Its troops have also raised the Ukrainian flag on the Russian-occupied left bank of the Dnipro River near the Antonivka Bridge in Kherson. So lots of successes. But getting back to those key Orakiv advances, do you think we're on the verge of something here, Roger? Yeah, it's tempting to think so, isn't it? The, the Ukrainian counteroffensive was never going to be easy, of course, but I think it's proved harder thus far than many wiser heads than ours had predicted. And of course, the delays in the provision of promised Western equipment gave the Russians that vital opportunity to construct in-depth defences along that southern front and particularly along that expected axis of advance towards Tokmak and, and Militopol. But it's tempting still, in spite of all of that, it's tempting to see, see some signs of progress here. The Ukrainians have opted against a costly frontal assault and instead have been picking their way through, rather methodically sort of clearing minefields and eliminating that, that covering Russian artillery. And it seems that in the area of Robotine, they are now at least close to those rear echelons of the Russian defence. So fingers crossed that that progress can be maintained. Whenever you're attacking fixed defences, you'll, you'll know this from your own work as a historian, Saul, you know, progress is always slow and painful. But assuming that that progress is made, then once the defences are penetrated, then the front can actually collapse quite rapidly because the entire defensive line is then compromised. And I think we saw something similar to that in the example of the, the counteroffensive that liberated Kharkiv last year. It's the old line about things collapsing, first of all, very slowly and then all at once. It may not be a coincidence, of course, that the, a bill has just been proposed in the Russian state Duma that would deprive individuals of Russian citizenship for evading military registration and, and mobilization. So you can see that there's some degree, perhaps, of alarm on the Russian side. And of course, just last night, a retired Russian general, Andrei Gurulyov, called for a tactical nuclear strike on Robotine, saying that it would make for a per perfect target. So I think you can see some elements of concern on the Russian side. I think it's also interesting that there's a lot of Western officials at the moment are seeking to take credit for some of these, we hope, Ukrainian successes, when only a week or two ago they were bemoaning their failure and claiming that the counteroffensive had stalled. And this has infuriated Phillips O'Brien, a friend of the podcast, as we know, who's one of those most incisive commentators on the conflict. And he wrote in his newsletter this week, it started five days ago in a story in the New York Times. Now, instead of simply rubbishing the Ukrainians for not having success, the anonymous sources tried the completely new line. Ukraine was having some success, but it wasn't down to the Ukrainians. No, it was a result of the US pushing the Ukrainians to do what the US wanted to do. And Phillips goes on. In speaking with Ukrainians, I can say that right now there's a great deal of bitterness at both how they were first thrown under the bus by the anonymous sources, and then to turn around and see those same sources try and claim credit for their success. What they're saying in public is restrained. After the war, they will probably be even more direct. Why can't people understand, says Phillips, that this is Ukraine's war and the Ukrainian high command is fighting in a clear and consistent way and has been since late June? It's hard to disagree with that.
Yeah, I totally agree. Now, let's move on to Ukraine's other good news, EU membership by 2030 and more F-16s. Now, I know, Roger, you're sceptical about the effect of the latter, and we'll come to that. But what do you make of EU membership? Only this week, Charles Michel, president of the European Council, said that Brussels had set 2030 as the deadline for the admission of Ukraine and several other states in the Western Balkans. On the face of it, it's very good news, isn't it? The Times' leading article certainly thinks so, noting that And I quote, it's a message that will be received with rejoicing and hope in Kyiv and confirms that Europe's political and military support for Ukraine in the face of Russia's brutal aggression is to be strengthened and institutionalized in the future. But how do you see it? Well, of course, it's a positive sign. I mean, who can forget that image from the Bucha last year of the the dead woman's hand clutching an EU keyring? I think EU membership signifies much of what Ukraine is fighting for that idea of sort of acceptance into the Western club and an end to the, the dead hand of the Kremlin overshadowing its affairs. There's an open question here about what the, the effect of Ukrainian membership would have on the EU, of course, you know, that agricultural policy and so on would probably have to be drastically reformed. Um, but still, that's a question for the future. So it's, it, symbolically, it's very, very important. I think what's What's more significant, what will be more significant to the Ukrainians is that the important goal of, of NATO membership. And I think that's much more uh, a short term, but, but much more significant goal because it's NATO that gives the West its teeth. It's not the EU. And that's what Ukraine at the moment needs most urgently. That aside, though, as you say, I'm not entirely convinced by the latest F-16 offers from Norway's prime minister, who's just visited Kiev. Um, He wouldn't say how many or even when, just that they would significantly strengthen Ukraine's military capabilities. Now, we have to bow to Ukraine's uh, knowledge in this. They know what they want and they know what what would suit their military requirements and their their fighting style and so on. But let's bear in mind that, you know, it's, it's unlikely to be more than 13 in total in this latest batch. And like the Dutch and Danish F-16s, they're all unlikely to see combat until next summer at the earliest, by which time the war could look very, very different. I mean, it could even be over. So I often think, you know, it's, is it not better to look at Eastern European countries donating their existing MiGs to Ukraine. I know this has happened in, to some extent already, but the problem is, I think, that those donations were always dependent on them being backfilled with F-35s from the US, which had to be ordered and so on. So um, those countries that were offering that, like Poland and Slovakia, promised their MiG-29s, but in the meantime, they were unwilling to let them go and leave themselves denuded of fighter cover. So, of course, I understand the logic of why they, they're, they're not giving them over en masse. But I wonder if this is something that perhaps might be revisited in due course, and especially if Ukraine's advance stalls in the autumn and winter of this year. Okay, well, let's move on to other matters and the interesting news that the Wagner Group financier Yevgeny Prigozhin uh, was quietly buried in St. Petersburg this week. And we hope, Roger, laying to rest the endless conspiracy theories that he wasn't actually on the plane. He's about to pop up in Africa or somewhere else. But what have you made of the news of the funeral this week? Yeah, so there's been a confirmation from the Russian Investigative Committee, which uh, is said to have carried out genetic tests and confirmed that he was one of the 10 people killed aboard that plane crash on the 23rd of August. So that, as you said, should put to bed those conspiracy theories. But um, as you know, conspiracy theories always uh, will crop up. So I'm sure we'll see a bit more of them. I don't doubt that he was aboard that plane, and nor was I actually in the slightest bit surprised. I I said at the time of the the mutiny in the summer that uh, he'd be dead by the end of the year. 
and it seems that I was being overly optimistic, which is unlike me. It's just another reminder, really, isn't it, that Russia is, is fundamentally a gangster state. And it's all like something out of the out of the Sopranos. Anyone who takes a a pot shot at the uh, the capo di capi, the, the the boss of bosses, is going to have to pay the consequences. And sooner or later, they're going to get whacked. And and that's essentially what's happened to Prigozhin. The winding up of the Wagner Group in the wake of Prigozhin's death has been especially thorough as well. We've seen that. We saw um, just last week we saw the clearing of a, a Wagner cemetery in near Samara, which was particularly brutally done. The Russian authorities, of course, said it was just a makeover of the site. But then this week, of course, there's also a, an ultimatum was delivered to, to the remaining members of, of Wagner, either join Russian regular forces or face disbandment. According to Emily Ferris of Rusi, the most likely scenario is that, and I quote here, Wagner will split into two and the remaining leaderless groupings in Belarus will be disbanded, and the other faction active abroad will morph into something that can be a tool of Russian foreign policy. Now, how all this might backfire for Putin and perhaps provoke another attempted putsch, only time will tell. But personally, I suspect that Wagner as a distinct entity is now finished. And the whole episode actually shows how damaged Putin was by the, by the mutiny. And Prigozhin's ignominious end will do little to make Russia appealing as a, a would-be partner to the BRICS countries and the global south. So I think this has some wider significance that perhaps we haven't yet uh, seen play out. Yeah, and there's an interesting related story, isn't there, which comes back to an area of particular expertise for you, Roger. I mean, you've written uh, lots of books about Germany and Poland. I know you spent a fair bit of time in Poland, both researching and receiving various awards. So I'm interested in your take on this. And, and that's the related story. That's the threat by Poland and the Baltic states, or some of them, to seal off their borders with Belarus if a critical incident arises with the Wagner fighters it is harboring. Um Given the disbandment of Wagner, this seems to be far less likely now, doesn't it? But there is actually more to this than meets the eye, Roger, isn't there? Yeah, I think so. And it's about two things. It's about plausible deniability for the Kremlin. And I think it's also about the Belarus dictator Alexander Lukashenko posing essentially as an honest broker. Our listeners will remember, I'm sure, how Lukashenko engineered a migrant crisis on Poland's eastern frontier back in 2021 flying in migrants from the Middle East to Minsk, who would then be bused to the Polish frontier and sort of urged westward by Lukashenko's goons. And Lukashenko then posed as an innocent bystander. And I'm absolutely sure he would do the same again if those Wagner remnants were to cause trouble at the frontier now. Now, of course, Lukashenko isn't an innocent and nor is he an honest broker. He's Putin's poodle. But what he offers However illusory it is, what he offers to the Kremlin is, to a degree, is plausible deniability, the opportunity for both himself and Putin to say that all of this is nothing to do with them. So this is still, I mean, still potentially a sort of fluid situation. So let's keep a watch on that and just see how it develops. But I should say that not all the news this week has been positive for Ukraine particularly the revelation from Ukrainian military intelligence that Russia has managed to rebuild its stockpile of ballistic weapons. GUR spokesman Vadim Skibitsky believes that Russian forces have exceeded 585 missiles with a range of over 500 kilometers. While Skibitsky believes this to be a sizable replenishment of Russia's missile supply, he doesn't think this is substantial enough to conduct a similar campaign as Russia carried out in the winter of 2022-23. Well, that's something, I suppose. And and just finally, to lighten the mood a little, uh, and in relation to the story we were 
covering last week, which was the news that there are plenty of Western countries still operating in Russia, um, despite the sanctions. It's good to know that one of them, Heineken, can no longer refresh the parts that other beers can't reach, well, not in Russia anyway, because a full 18 months after the main invasion of Ukraine, the Dutch brewer has completed its withdrawal from Russia and taken a 300 million euro hit in the process. It is, of course, better late than never, but we are left scratching our heads as to why it's taken so long. Well, that's all for part one. Do join us after the break when we'll consider David Alexander's latest cybersecurity update and answer listeners' questions. The people at KPMG make the difference for their clients. Talented teams leveraging the right technology to uncover insights that illuminate opportunity. KPMG teams together with their clients working shoulder to shoulder with them to help grow and transform their enterprise. Are you ready to make the difference together? Go to visit.kpmg.us backslash transformation to learn more. Welcome back. Well, before we go to listeners' questions, uh, we're going to give you, as promised, an extract from David Alexander's latest and very detailed, I have to say, cybersecurity update. So we're going to try and give you a little bit of a digest. Now, he really writes about two main items. And the first item is, uh, as he puts it, there's only one big story I think worth mentioning or bringing up again, because there's fresh material. And that is that the Russians are making a determined effort to compromise the Ukrainian use of the Starlink satellite system. David goes on to say, I believe there are two questions to answer. Firstly, can Russia lawfully target Starlink satellites as a valid military objective under international law? And secondly, if Russia did attack the satellites, would the US take direct military action? The answer to the questions, and I'm summarizing here, are no and yes, which leaves Russia, according to David, with only one option, targeting the Starlink terminals being used by the UAF in Ukrainian territories. And the way they're doing that is by using malware with, fortunately, as David points out, mixed results. Now, the second item that David mentions in his digest is is uh, much less serious and might amuse some of our listeners. It's the latest instalment in a string of hacks on Russian media channels by the Ukrainians. On Ukrainian Independence Day, government hackers from Ukraine compromised building CCTV and alarm systems in many cities in Russia to play a message and the Ukrainian national anthem to somewhat confused Russian citizens. The message contained an address by Ukrainian President Vladimir Zelensky to Russian citizens, and it ran as follows. Instead of ending this senseless war, the Russian authorities are trying to send new people to the war to replace the dead. What awaits them all? You know the answer. Ukraine will continue to defend itself and will win this war that has been waged against us. Because we are on our own land. We have the truth on our side, and the entire civilized world is with us. Thousands of bodies of dead Russian soldiers remain in Ukraine, and they just rot in the fields. If you want to live, run away. Surrender to captivity. Come out to the streets and squares. The reaction of those Russian civilians could be seen on those CCTV systems, and many of the Russians who heard his address recorded Zelensky's words on their phones, presumably to send or to show to others. Some even smiled and waved to the camera. So it's quite a nice sort of humorous end, I suppose, to a, a, what I'm sure was a very complex hacking operation. 
Yeah, and and they've had a lot of success in that in that area, as we've noticed from David. I mean, th- some of these stories have got into the press, but uh, if they haven't, we're being reminded of them. But thanks again, David, for your help with all of this uh, vital information. Okay, on to the questions, uh, and the first one's not really a question; it's just a reminder that we are getting a little bit of trolling from Russian bots every now and again, or at least we're pretty sure this is a Russian bot. Um, this is from someone called Tree Guy, uh, and he says quite bluntly and simply. Guys, you've lost. When will your handlers tell you to announce it? Um, I think he thinks we're dupes of British intelligence, uh, Ukrainian intelligence, possibly. Um, and sooner or later, our handlers are going to have to admit the awful inevitable, which is Ukraine's lost the war. We don't need to agree with we don't, that. We don't need to dwell on that. <laughs> I'm very intrigued to know who my handler is because I've never met them. <laughs> 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 they're so secret our handlers that we haven't actually been introduced to their existence yeah, exactly. yet um, <laughs> uh, t- t- time will change okay roger a question for you which is nice given that we flagged you up last week and the uh, listeners have already t- taken notice yes it's uh from scotty dog 01 via twitter uh what parallels does he notice do i notice between the current war and that of the german invasion of poland subsequent molotov ribbentrop pact of course molotov ribbentrop pact predated the war but yeah so that's i mean those are uh, subjects of my uh, recent books on the uh, polish campaign of 39 and the nazi soviet pact um yeah i think the parallels there you can you can overdo these parallels i think there are quite a few parallels at the beginning but maybe not necessarily with the german invasion of poland in 39 but more with the soviet invasion of poland in 39 which is sort of less uh, well known, particularly in the Western narrative, but happened on began on the on the seventeenth of September, nineteen thirty nine, and w- what we saw at the beginning of the the Russian invasion of Ukraine last year was was sort of similar methodology to some extent. You know, use of false flags, um, disinformation campaigns, also that arrogance, if you like, or that conviction that the, it, it would be a quick war because, you know, the, the ordinary people would, would support the invaders, which again, they assumed in 1939 as well. So to a large extent, this follows, you know, the sort of standard Kremlin methodology of war, the, the Kremlin playbook, uh, which is interesting that they're still using the same methods of, you know, Maskirovka and and, uh, and desinformatia, disinformation. Those are still key parts of the of the Kremlin's playbook today as they were in 1939. So there are similarities there. I think to some extent then there's also a similarity, but this is where the similarity breaks down, is that you know the, the victim, if you like, Poland in 1939 and Ukraine today, then has lots of expressions of support from the outside world, particularly from you know London, Paris, and everywhere else, which in the modern example, you know, have been reasonably forthcoming at least. I mean, look at the international coalition that's come together to assist Ukraine today and in material terms in supplying military hardware and everything else. And that's that's been absolutely, I think, exemplary in what's been done. Of course, it could have been better, but uh, but still, it's been been very robust international response. You couldn't really say the same about the response to Poland in 1939. There were lots of warm words of support from from Britain and France, but um, not much in the way of of actual material assistance. So I think that's where that comparison particularly breaks down. And also, I think there's a, a fundamental difference is the is the disparity of forces. There was a huge disparity of forces in 1939. You know, Poland had a lot of numbers, had a lot of men, but really wasn't uh, technologically up to speed, certainly to face the Germans. 
And that, that's not talking about high-level tech. It's just talking about motorization to a large extent. You know, Poland's was still very much a horse-based army in 1939, whereas the, uh, the Germans were, to a much larger extent, motorized. So there was a fundamental military disparity between the two sides in 39, which, which as has been shown, is not really the case today. Uh, the Kremlin thought that disparity was still there, of course, but um, as events have shown in the last 18 months, um, it's a much more even conflict now. So I think there are some similarities and echoes, but uh, it would, it, this is its own conflict. And this is the problem, I think, with always referring back to history and saying what's the same and what's different. Uh, it's a useful tool up, up to a point, but then we have to also admit that this is its own conflict. You know, this is uh, a history all of its own, and, and it has its own background and its, and its own uh, trajectory. Well said, Roger, but we're about to make more historical comparisons as, yeah. as we do inevitably, <laughs> sadly, as historians. It's interesting uh, not having Patrick here this week because he does have his uh, his war reporter hat on occasionally, which is not a hat, generally speaking, you and I wear. Anyway, let's move on to Peter Kirk. Uh, Ukraine seems to have established, he writes, a bridgehead on the south bank of the Dnipro in the Kherson region. It has indeed, as we mentioned. How important is control of the Dnipro River and is there any part precedent for large-scale river crossings, including armor and supplies, which the Ukrainians could learn from. Well, I think we both probably got an example, but mine is an example from my forthcoming book, Sky Warriors, published next April 2024. Good plug. Big plug there. And and by the way, Roger, we are, we, we've already mentioned a couple of your books, uh, but we are going to talk about the current one at the end of this podcast. Don't let me forget that because it is out now. And one of the advantages of coming on this podcast is you do get to talk about your books. Anyway, back to the uh, the relevant comparison, and that is uh, Operation Varsity. It's so interesting, isn't it, Roger, that in wartime, the disasters are often better known than, than the successes. But Operation Varsity, which was the airborne operation for the crossing of the Rhine in March 1945, was, uh, largely speaking, a great success. It was done in collaboration with the amphibious crossing, of course, Operation Plunder. And one of the reasons it was so successful is because they'd learned the lessons of the disaster at Arnhem, which, by the way, as I argue in my book, actually came a little bit closer to succeeding than uh, most people generally recognise. But back to Varsity for a second. What they'd learned is don't have the airborne forces too far away from the ground forces. In fact, even better than that, make sure the ground forces are over the obstacle, in this case, the River Rhine, which generally speaking through history has been one of the most difficult river obstacles to cross for obvious reasons, because it's very wide. But make sure the amphibious troops are over first, which is exactly what happened. They got over in the morning, Operation Plunder, organized, of course, or, or overall command under Montgomery. And again, another operation that, that's sort of gone by the wayside. There's this assumption, isn't there, Roger, that by 45, the war's effectively over. So all these operations are sort of, you know, a done deals. No military operation, I think, as we would agree, are done deals. But in any case, make sure that you, you don't have too far to go to get to the airborne forces. And a lot of the mistakes that were made at Arnhem are no longer made in March 45. And it's, you know, it's just important to recognize that airborne forces do sometimes get a bad rap. But in this case, they really showed what they could do. 
Could Ukraine use airborne forces in this context? Possibly. But what, of course, the Allies had in March 1945, as indeed they had in September 44, is air superiority. And that's something that, of course, we've discussed many times. That's the point I was going to come in on this. Um, and my example would have, I, I knew you were going to take the Rhine, but my example was going to be the crossing of the order, the Soviet crossing of the order in 45. And that's um, a similar case where, you, you you know, they had air superiority, crucially, and, you know, massive superiority on the ground. So it was it was sort of a an exercise in, if nothing else, in brute force, if you like. The problem that Ukraine has now, if you, where, where this comparison breaks down, is that they don't necessarily have air superiority and they don't necessarily have either that sort of massive preponderance of force. So it has to be much more surgical in the way it's done in terms of, you know, if you don't have the air, air superiority necessarily, you have to do as they're doing at the moment, which is to take out the, any covering artillery. Uh, before you try and make those landings. So I think this is actually quite a different operation. And that's perfectly normal and natural. I think, go, go back to my earlier point, you know, they are, they are carrying out their own campaign. They're not looking at historical precedents. Every military campaign is, is unique in its own way. So th- to some extent, I think these, these comparisons, I mean, it's a nice parlor game for us historians, but um, whether it actually sort of brings us any closer to an understanding is another question. Yeah, and the Ukrainian general staff, I think, will be seeing these river crossings as a means of distracting the Russians and drawing away some of their best forces. Uh, But there's flexibility here, as we've discussed all the way through, and the point Phillips O'Brien keeps making, which is if they see an opportunity and the the Russian forces there get denuded to the extent that they really do think they can begin to break out of a bridgehead, which it now looks like they have on the left bank of the Dnipro, they will do that. But nothing is preordained any more than it should be in military operations. So we're waiting and see what happens on that one. But there are, as we said at the beginning of this program, an increasing number of signs that Russian defences in the South are beginning to crack. Uh, Whether they'll crack completely, only time will tell. So Ben Cole from Adelaide um, writes, I noticed that Kerch Bridge is temporarily closed. He says, why do Ukraine keep trying to destroy sections of it? What's the strategic importance of the bridge and of Crimea? Do you want to have a go at that? Yeah, I mean, thanks, Ben. We we hope if you listen to some of the previous episodes, you'll understand the strategic importance. I mean, really, in a nutshell, it's the main supply route into Crimea from Russia, built as a you know a kind of symbol of Crimea's everlasting attachment to Russia, but also with a military uh, and symbolic purpose too. So what the Ukrainians are trying to do is is strike against that sort of symbolic connection of Crimea to the Russian mainland, but also sever, much more importantly, sever this uh, line of supply. And also the means by which, frankly, a lot of Russian tourists were going to Crimea during the course of this war and are probably being uh, discouraged, of course, by the fact that the bridge is constantly coming under attack. But there's a very real reason to bring it under attack because... If you think about it, the two areas of strategy for Ukraine are to sever the land bridge to Crimea and to sever the actual bridge to Crimea. And if you can cut off those two supply lines, Crimea is isolated and in real risk uh, uh, you know, of panic, but also of being recaptured by the Ukrainians. Yeah, and I th- I'd just add one thing to that um, answer is you say it has a symbolic significance, which I absolutely agree with. But I think it's much more than that, that that Crimea as a whole kind of goes to the heart of, to a large extent, actually, of of Russia's sort of image of itself and the image of its own might, historically speaking. You know, Russia always had these sort of two windows to the world, windows to the West, the Baltic and the Black Sea. And having Crimea, having control of Crimea is 
vitally important for that Black Sea access and out through the Dardanelles and the Mediterranean and everything else. If, if Russia loses Crimea, and this is, this is why, I mean, the, the conflict that's going on at the moment, which we can, we can talk about all day, but the conflict that's going on at the moment is only in part about territory. It's much more about, you know, a view of the world and how the world should be. And it's a challenge to the international order and all of that. But where it is about territory, uh, the part that is about territory is about Eastern Ukraine. It's about about Crimea, and this is about goes back to Russia's view of itself. So it's always been that strategic ambition to have control of those two sort of outlets to the world: the Baltic on the one side and the and the Black Sea at the at the other. And if it loses Crimea, then you're left with you know there's no there's no place for the for the uh, Russian Black Sea fleet, for example. So it is much, much more significant to Russia in a sort of, in a hugely symbolic way and historic way than, than anything that's just going on today. So we have to bear that in mind as well. Yeah. And just quickly on that subject, um, we don't want to labor the point here too much, uh, Roger, but it would be interesting to hear your views on on this. I mean, do you think that, you know, a lot of saber rattling, a lot of threats to use nuclear weapons, do you, do you think that the Crimea is a uh, an existential issue for Russia that it might possibly conceive of using tactical nuclear weapons in defense of Crimea? Yeah, well, I mean, we have to hope, God forbid, that that should ever be considered. Um, but it is, it is one of those issues that, that, you know, cuts very close to the bone in the Russian psyche, if you like. I know I'm, I'm mixing my metaphors horribly there. Um, but, I, you know, I, I think that uh, it, it is very, very significant in the Russian mind, the, um, the role of Crimea and control of Crimea. So it, it could well be one of those sort of really touchstone issues, yes. But as you say, I mean, God forbid that they should ever uh, consider using nuclear weapons. Okay, here's a question from Dave Angel. Does the US want a total Russian defeat and Putin to go, or is a weakened, contained Putin a preferred outcome? China would surely understand such an outcome was a strategic win for the West. Zelensky unlikely to negotiate a settlement. So is Zelensky a block to the US achieving its goals? Well, let's deal with the first bit of that. It sounds a bit of a conspiracy theory, but there is some evidence, I suppose, to indicate that it doesn't want a total defeat. I mean, we've had some briefing from... U.S. sources suggesting, you know, if Putin goes, they might get something worse. Uh, and certainly the withholding of weapons up till now would indicate that uh, they don't want a sudden and, you know, total victory over the Russians. The other argument, of course, is they haven't been giving them weapons that they can use to, you know, to attack Russia itself, uh, because that's the danger of escalation. So you you can take either side of the argument there. But just to deal with the second point, too, is Zelensky a block to the US achieving its goals? Not just Zelensky is all I can say. Having recently visited Ukraine, as listeners know, we absolutely got a sense that the population were determined to see this war through, the soldiers and the civilians. So whatever Zelensky wants now, he is going to be heavily influenced by public opinion, as indeed any elected uh, politician needs to be. And public opinion would not let him get away, frankly, with doing a deal at this stage. Now, if the war still drags on for another year with more losses and not many more gains, then we can think again. But as things stand, uh, no, it's not Zelensky that's a block to uh, US ambitions to end the war sooner rather than later. It's the Ukrainian population. I would agree. So and I think I think there's a wider sort of divergence in view here, um, particularly between sort of Central and Eastern Europe and including Ukraine in that. Um, and if you like the outside world, I think I think the UK kind of gets it. I think the UK government understands that Central European viewpoint. But that Central European viewpoint is one that's worth reiterating, 
which is that they see Russia, and certainly under Putin at the moment in its current iteration, as, a, as an existential threat. Now, this doesn't end at Ukraine. If Russia, if Russia were to win in Ukraine, or if it were to find some sort of negotiated settlement, that is not the end of the story. That's not the end of the threat from Russia. And the countries of Central Europe that have been most vociferous and most belligerent in this, you know, you think of the Baltic states, you think of Poland particularly, they get this aspect with absolute clarity that Russia is an existential threat to them. Now, the outside world, as I said, I think Britain kind of gets that as well. But the outside world, Germany, France, and the US, I think, is much more clouded in, in actually appreciating that generational threat that Russia at the moment poses. They see this as a conflict that could be solved by negotiation, perhaps, or, or they don't want to escalate. Um, so there's a fundamental difference in the kind of strategic vision between those closest to the conflict geographically and those further away. So I think that's a point that we need to also bring in. And it was interesting, I noticed something, noticed something last week with um, you know the, the sort of jostling for position in American politics at the moment with the, the candidates for the uh, Republican nomination. And this um, Vivek Ramaswamy, for example, who was saying that uh, in criticizing Biden, saying that he couldn't see the, um, the US's strategic interest in supporting Ukraine. And I thought, frankly, well, there's a real fundamental problem if a, if a presidential candidate can't see the interest that the US should have in supporting Ukraine at the moment, because that's that's really something of a strategic failure of vision. Um, so I think there's there's always been that strand of is isolationism in the States. Uh, but I think this is something slightly more. I think it's a, f a failure of that sort of strategic understanding of precisely what's going on. Yeah. And a related question to that, if we'll move on next, um, Roger, is from John Birmingham. And he asked, what will happen if Trump becomes president next year and Ukraine is still fighting? And what, what you've just pointed out is we don't just have to be concerned about Trump. But let's say yeah. Trump does get in and it's not beyond the absolute realms of possibility, although we consider that the ever lengthening uh, list of charges against him, the most recent, of course, being in Georgia, might scupper his chances. But if he does become president, what do you think? Uh, w what will happen? Yeah, I think that, uh, again, you're, you're absolutely right in saying it's not just Trump. I mean, there are other voices saying very similar things. Of course, there are others on the American, on the right of American politics who are saying all the right things about Ukraine. But, you know, those voices are still there that are, um, you know, antithetical to, to su the support of Ukraine. Now, what would happen if Trump or A another gets in next year? Well, I, I think that looks pretty bad for Ukraine. I think, as you said, their, their support has been, you know, slightly sort of contingent, if you like, so far. It hasn't been full-blooded, full-throated necessarily. That would be watered down still further. I mean, even to the point that support would be withdrawn. So I think you, it's really vital for Ukraine to try, and its, and its allies, of course, but to try and make some significant progress before that happens to, so that they're not in a position of, of stalemate still you know, fighting over the same towns that they're fighting over now uh, in a year's time, because that, that then becomes a very serious problem with potential change of US, US government. So that, to me, is, is, is a really profound problem if that, if that does come about. Okay, question from Elizabeth. What feedback are the UK military getting about their training programme for Ukrainian forces? Uh, and she's just wondering this because there's been recent criticism 
about such training generally. And to put that into context, there certainly was some suggestion that NATO tactics, and this is coming from the Ukrainians, were not necessarily relevant for Ukraine. It's a different type of war to the wars that NATO's fought in the past, or at least as envisaged it might fight. But to give you a little bit of inside information, Elizabeth, I've I've spoken to some people who actually trained Ukrainian forces, and they say, on the one hand, they're very grateful, but two, they are incredibly quick to adapt to new methods. So a whole Marine battalion, for example, Ukrainian Marine battalion was trained by Royal Marine commandos. uh, And they're as bad as good as we've got in terms of amphibious shock troops. And going back to the river crossing, of course, you know, we talked, I talked about paratroops, but of course, you also have the river crossing by amphibious troops. And these Ukrainians trained by the Brits would be perfect for that sort of operation. So I think they're very grateful. They feel that the training is pretty good, but it's not necessarily uh, exactly what they need for this sort of warfare. And they certainly don't like being told that if only the Ukrainians did it more like NATO, they'd have more success. So there's a kind of mixture of motives, really, in terms of the way people are responding to this. But generally speaking, there's no doubt that they are incredibly grateful for the training. And on the whole, certainly when it's being done by British forces, and this is me waving the flag just a little bit here, um, it's been pretty effective, I think. A very interesting question here from Ivaris from Lithuania, and I've, I, I hear he's a great friend of the podcast. There were voices that if Ukraine would give up some of its territories, Ukraine may be accepted into NATO. But I have some doubts that this is realistic, he says, uh, because Russia will never let Ukraine into NATO. How will Russia reach this? If in Ukraine's southeast front there is stalemate, Russia will hold military tensions by making that area like a second Donbass. There will be shootings and so on. The question goes on, but I think the point is is a very well-made one that the criteria for joining NATO are that, or one of the criteria is that uh, the country has to be at peace. And Russia, of course, is very good at creating these, uh, as we know now, we, we call them frozen conflicts. You can look at the example of um, you know, Armenia and Azerbaijan that's been rumbling on for, for decades down in the Caucasus. And that's one that's um, uh, you know, flared up again recently. But Russia's been very good at keeping those conflicts sort of uh, not necessarily rumbling, but sort of still there in the background. And, and, and the Kremlin is very good at holding the ring and, and you know, keeping its influence uh, over those you know, uh, otherwise nominally independent countries because of that role that it has um, militarily and historically. And I think this is another example. I think, he, I think Ivaris is right in principle that this is, this is certainly what Russia's seizure of Donbass was, I think, was seeing that Ukrainian pivot westward. Uh, in 2014, this was a the way of a way of Russia basically, you know, grab, if you like, grabbing onto Ukraine's collar as it's sort of turning westward and saying, "No, you don't. You're not going anywhere," because they're creating this this sort of ongoing low level conflict in Donbass, thereby preventing Ukraine from from completing that sort of pivot westward. So I think he's right that there will be all sorts of nefarious methods used, even if we have some sort of negotiated settlement, which will certainly, I mean, for all sides, be be um, unsatisfactory, I'm sure. But in a sense, Russia probably now sees that, short of outright victory, which it thought it would have last February, um, it thought that you know, the operation would last three days. So I think the idea of a Russian victory is now out of the window. I think even they know that. From the Russian perspective, what a good solution now, from the perspective of the Kremlin, would be to to hang on to something to create that frozen conflict, to keep the the Ukraine war in effect in stasis, 
so that Ukraine can't complete its sort of pivot westward and have Ukraine have um, you know NATO membership and and EU membership and everything else that it that it aspires to. So I think that I think he's absolutely right in that question that that is the way that Russia will probably want this to go, and I think that is a a fundamental problem. Perhaps the the criteria for NATO membership and so on need to be tweaked to enable. A, a not fully at peace Ukraine to, to join the club. So that, that's a, a, a really interesting uh, aspect, I think. Okay, moving on to Emir Krupic. And this is a question or at least a, a message that relates to Patrick and my and James's, of course, recent trip to Ukraine. He writes, hello, gentlemen, the next time you're in Ukraine, a word of advice. Whenever the wife and I travel on a compartment train, we buy all the tickets in the compartment. Then you don't have to share with anyone. You are lucky you only got two cranky women. He's referring to the two ladies that Patrick and I were sharing a compartment with. It's far better than a loudmouth, smelly drunk or two. The hostesses in each compartment usually sell beer as a side hustle for extra money. It's not really corruption. They just don't get paid much and offer an extra service for a few extra bucks. Oh, and I forgot to mention, especially for Saul, as he was on the top bunk, that you should never use the top bunks on trains here if you don't fall asleep on it. On more than one occasion, people have died here when they've been thrown from the top bunk on a rough stretch of track at high speed. I couldn't find any articles in English for you, so you'll have to translate one below. He sends this through, which has obviously got details of deaths uh, uh, on trains recently. It would be a real loss, writes Emir, for you to come to Ukraine next time and survive the Russian aggression, only to be done over by a rough stretch of track and a top (laughs) bunk. I'd never get over it, but at least I'd have given you the heads up. Well, thanks so much, Emir. I have to say we were concerned about a few things when we're in Ukraine, uh, one of them being infiltration by the uh, the Russians uh, and therefore giving them an indication as to where we were heading, uh, giving away certain security locations. And the other, of course, being uh, at threat from missile attacks. But we didn't consider the trains. We will next time. Um, and one last thing relating to our trip, and that is the interview with Joshua, which we ran last week or the week before. And he, of course, was the captain from Tennessee who'd been fighting on the side of the Ukrainians. Well, a message from Andrew. Thank God for Joshua. Every U.S. Republican politician should listen to him. Uh, apropos Roger's recent comments, um, uh, we totally agree with that. Absolutely. Okay, well, that's all we have time for. Um, But before we go, as I said before, it it would be remiss not to discuss Roger's new book, The Forgers, which I've already interviewed him for, for a separate podcast. But uh, Roger, briefly, tell us what it's about and why people should buy it. Yeah, thank you, Saul. Um, the Forgers, it's its a bit of a departure for me. It's Holocaust history, which I hadn't really done before. Um, so it's always been there lurking in the corner of a lot of a lot of what I have written about. So I, I, I wanted to find something on, on the Holocaust to, to write about. And this was this sort of landed in my lap a couple of years ago and became, as it turned out, my COVID project. And it's about a, um, a rescue operation during the Holocaust, which was carried out by Polish diplomats and Jewish activists working out of Switzerland. Uh, and they were producing, unofficially producing, shall we say, or forging Latin American passports that were then uh, spirited back in primarily into Poland, but also into Holland uh, to enable Jews threatened by the Holocaust to survive. And it's a fascinating story because it, it not only goes to the heart of you know, Poland's experience and the Polish reaction to the Holocaust, which, of course, was a, you know, across an absolute spectrum, but also the international reaction and, and, and the, the extent of international knowledge of the Holocaust. So there's a lot of strands there that I was able to tease out. And, and I, th- I, I found it an absolutely fascinating book 
to write. It's heartrending to a large extent, but there's also some sort of moments of of levity and moments of humour, and and you know that crucially, it's not an entirely dark story. So I think there's um, it's a, I found it fascinating, and I, I hope the readers do as well. No, I mean this is this is more Schindler's List than it is uh, Sophie's Choice, isn't it, Roger? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And I have to, to commend you on finding a story about the Holocaust uh, of this sort of scale. I mean, we're talking about uh, hundreds of people saved, possibly more than a thousand um, mm. that we haven't really heard about before. I mean, it's it's absolutely astonishing. Yes, it fell into your lap. That's one thing, but it's another to tell a cracking story and to do it in a in a compelling way. And you've done that, Roger. So yes, please, everyone, go out there and buy the Forges. You can get it in the uk you can get it in the us you can get it across europe frankly and last thing to say roger it's been a great pleasure having you on this week we hope you'll be back patrick is uh, in the hot seat again himself next week but whenever one or other of us is not available uh, roger will be taking over uh, we hope not permanently either of us that is um but i think you'll all agree uh, it's been a seamless transition so thanks so much roger Thanks, all. Been great fun. Great stuff. Okay, we'll see everyone next week for Wednesday when we'll be continuing our travels through Ukraine and also on Friday for news and listeners' questions when Patrick will be back. Goodbye. Goodbye. Goodbye.